I want to try to help you understand that when you heard the words that were given a moment ago, the words from the Sermon on the Mount, you heard the most valuable piece of knowledge that has ever been committed to human beings. Welcome to the Renovare Podcast, a place for honest conversations about interactive life with God. now been eight years since Dallas Willard crossed the veil into eternity. And to help celebrate his life and work, we wanted to share with you this talk from a Renovari event back in 1999. It's a pleasure to be here this evening, and I would like to take the time that I have to try to lay a very clear biblical and conceptual foundation for the studies and the times of worship that we have ahead of us. The topic for this talk is Living the Divine Conspiracy Through Jesus' Words of Eternal Life. You'll remember the situation where Jesus had been giving some teaching in John 6, and you'll remember how he had said that unless we ate his flesh and drank his blood, we would have no life in us. And that was his way of expressing the fact that we have eternal life, by a deep, abiding, personal relationship in which we literally take the substance of our life from him. Of course, it was put in language that frightened many people. And indeed, it is frightening to a human being to hear this sort of thing from anyone. Because they're being told of their utter dependence on God. And the challenge from the very beginning, the time in the garden when Adam and Eve... We're faced temptation. The challenge has always been, will we be our own God? Will we trust ourselves? Or will we trust God? And when Jesus comes among us, the incarnate God, the humble Son of God, comes into our midst as one of us and invites us to put our confidence in him. We face that same challenge. Can we trust him? Can we really stop thinking that we can provide for ourselves? And of course, many people turned away from him in that day. And you'll remember he said to his disciples, Will you also go away? And Peter replied with those memorable words, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed... And have come to know that you are the Son of God. You are God. And this evening, I want to try to build your confidence in Jesus, the Son of God. I want to try to help you understand that when you heard the words that were given a moment ago in this wonderful presentation, the words from the Sermon on the Mount, You heard the most valuable piece of knowledge that has ever been committed to human beings. It's the deepest, most profound treatment of what our life was meant to be. And when Jesus comes down to the end of it, you'll remember he just says very simply, those who hear my words and do them. 
those who hear my words and do them. Like a person, a wise person, who builds their house on the rock. And Jesus lived in earthquake country and flood country, and he knew all about that. And he knew that the house on the rock would stand. And he's talking about our life. That thing you know that you and I are going through. Some of us have been going through it a little longer than others. That process of coming to birth and growing up and, and finding our way. Family and work and old age and what is called death. That process can become an eternal life. By becoming a part of the life of God himself in our time. That's what it means for our lives to become eternal. It means for them to be so caught up in what God is doing in our time. That they are an everlasting part of what God is doing for all time. And the invitation to you and to me is to be a part of that. And Jesus came preaching. And his words, you'll remember, were first sounded out by John. It's so typical of God's approach to us as human beings that the first way the message would come, you'll find it in the, in the first uh, part of the uh, Gospel of Matthew. John the Baptist, in the wilderness. I don't know, maybe in Texas that would be like west of the Pecos or someplace like that. And uh, there, here was this man, this prophet, down there in the Judean wilderness saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that word began to echo. John the Baptist laid the foundation. What was that word? That word was very simple. That word was a simple invitation for human beings to come and bring their lives into the life of God himself. Repent. Metanoeti. Think about your thinking. That's one of the hardest things we do is think about our thinking. Richard talked about the importance of ideas. The ideas are those assumptions that guide our action without thinking. They're the part of the self that lies so far back there that we don't think about them. We just act on them automatically. Think about your thinking, John the Baptist said. Because now you have the opportunity to bring your life into the life of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the heavens. Jesus came, preaching the same message. John the Baptist was put in prison. Jesus comes preaching exactly the same words. Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is available. The invitation for you and me and the people who were there at that time and through the ages to take our life and bring it into the life of God. And that message of the kingdom of the heavens remains constant. And we see it all through the scriptures. We go through the New Testament and we read over and over about the availability of the kingdom of God. In Matthew 11, 11 and 12. Truly I say to you among those born of women, there is not one arisen greater than John the Baptist... Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of the heavens is greater than John the Baptist. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, Jesus says, the kingdom of the heavens suffers violence, and the violent 
take it by force. Now, he's not talking about people running around with Uzis and hand grenades. He's talking about people who did not stand on formalities, but when they saw Jesus Christ, they simply rushed into his presence. And over and over in the scriptures you see that. You come down in Matthew 8, a little leper comes, ringing his bell possibly, possibly saying, unclean, unclean, but he's coming. He shouldn't have come in the first place. He wasn't lepers, if you know anything about the Bible, lepers are supposed to go, not come. Right? But somehow he had heard what Jesus had said. And here comes the little leper. See, that's, that's a violent man taking the kingdom of heaven by force. He comes and he says, if you would, not necessarily that you would, but if you would, you could make me clean. And you remember what Jesus did? He touched him. He touched the untouchable. See, that's a violent person taking the kingdom by force. He wasn't supposed to be there. Go on and read that whole chapter. It's an illustration of it. A little woman with an issue of blood that couldn't be cured. A Roman who wasn't even supposed to come close to a proper Jew. But he comes to Jesus. Jesus finds in that Roman someone, he says, I have not seen so great faith. No, not in Texas. That's taking it by force. And that message goes on. I wish we had time to spend a lot of time on it, but I want to turn a few pages here. You find in all of the Gospels the message, but let's just look quickly at the opening of the book of Acts. And you see here Luke's report on what Jesus did between the time he was resurrected and the time he was taken up into heaven. Listen to these words. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After that, he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning church growth. Did I read that wrong? <laughs> Just think of how many things from the history of the church we could have put in there. But he spoke about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And you go on and you look in Acts 9 and you see old Philip down here in Samaria preaching away and causing a great stir. And people are turning to God. What was he preaching? Look at Acts 12, 9, 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Men and women alike. What was Philip preaching? You see, the message of Jesus is the message of the availability of the kingdom of God. Note the conjunction there. The message of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. They went together. They went together. And if we had time this evening, we could go on through the book of Acts and see how Paul 
preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. And how it comes right down to the end of the book. And we find Paul sitting in Rome. Right at the end of the book of Acts, verse 30. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus. Now, let me just very quickly say to you, if you're going to understand Jesus and his message, and if you're going to be able to respond to him appropriately, so that, for example, the words that were given in the Sermon on the Mount would sound to you like good news and the best instructions on how to live you ever heard. You have to understand that Jesus comes into this world then, and he came, comes into this world now, and stands flat-footed on a level with everyone else who claims to tell you and me how to live. He competes at that level. And if we don't put him at that level, we will never be able to appreciate what he says and take what he says and step into it and know the reality he's talking about. The human being has the problem, how to live. We all have that problem. Most of us don't solve it very quickly. We all know that saying, we grow too soon old and too late smart. And when we grow older, we know how true that is. We have the problem of knowing how to live. And we can't solve that problem satisfactorily at a human level. We've had a while at that. And uh, I don't know about you, but if you listen to the news reports day by day and, and listen to the mayhem du jour that is served up, uh, constantly, you know, and you say, what is going on here? In Jesus' own day, he had compassion on the people because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Sheep have no shepherd are in real trouble. And that's a picture of who we are. And we, we build our educational systems and we have our are great thinkers and representatives of something called uh, human truth and understanding, and it's a heartbreak because it cannot cure the running wound of the human soul. And Jesus comes in that scene, as he did in his own day and as he does in still his own day, our day. And he says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. You see, he wants to be our teacher. For I am meek and lowly of heart. Have you ever heard a university professor described as meek and lowly of heart? Of course, university professors generally will not touch this now. They teach subject matters. They don't teach how to live. Uh, They're not in that business any longer, and maybe it's for the best. But Jesus comes and says, learn of me, and you'll find rest unto your soul. Now, see, what I'm saying to you is you ought to read his statements with at least the inference and the confidence with which you would read Dear Gabby. But many Christians can't do that. And they can't do that because of that idea system. You see, that idea system. I don't know what you felt this evening as you heard the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. 
But I think sometimes the most common response of we Christians is, what are we going to do with this? What are we going to do with this? Bless those that curse us? I can't even bless those who bug me. (laughs) Maybe we could start there. I think he'd be proud of us if we could bless those who bug us. You see, Jesus comes. Now, he has put in place a process which is going to eventuate in human beings who understand and live in the truth that he is and the truth that he gives. And that is the divine conspiracy. The divine conspiracy is nothing but the form the kingdom of God takes in human history. It is the mystery of the kingdom of God that is at work among human beings. And there's much that we need to say about that, but let me just briefly say it is a mystery and it is a conspiracy because God in his wisdom has decided not to run over us. What he wants will be won by love. I have a lot of friends who seem to talk as if somehow at the end of time Jesus will show up with an atomic cattle prod and everyone will straighten out. Well, let me tell you, if he'd been interested in that, he could have done that right after Adam and Eve ate that apple. And if he simply wanted everyone to do what we know to be right, he could arrange for that immediately. But that's not his way. His way is to approach us gently with love and to leave us room to seek and to find him. And the divine conspiracy is the presence of the kingdom of God among human beings, just like you and me. Down through history, as he in the way he knows to be best, brings to completion his purposes for human life. You know, we have a lot of voices that speak on the other side. I have on your notes a reference to Nietzsche and Antichrist. And the appeal is always very simply, the appeal is to power. Some of you will know that Nietzsche talks about the will to power as the ultimate drive in human existence. And Satan tempted Jesus with that. He said, I'll give you all power over all nations. And he led him through the temptations that human beings constantly fall for. And Jesus simply said no, because he knew that power would not solve the problem. It will not solve it then. It will not solve it now. It will not solve it at a national or international level. Sometimes we have to use power. It will not solve it in the home. It is not a matter of what power parents have or children have. You may all have heard about the man who ruled his house with an iron lung. And uh, a lot of that goes on. But the truth of of the matter is you don't get anywhere like that. It's just like the the words from from the Sermon on the Mount. Judge and you shall be judged. You try to use the force. You try to use the power. And what is the alternative? The alternative is to step back into the kingdom of God. That's the answer. 
You see, every human teacher has to answer three basic questions. What is real? What is real? See, that's the condition of your acting and mine, is that we deal with reality. And that we interact with reality as it is. And that's true of everything from the chairs you're sitting on to your plans for your retirement or whatever it may be. You're dealing with reality. Every teacher has to deal with that. Jesus deals with it. Every great teacher has to deal with issues. Who is well off? Who's really got it made? Happiness. What is happiness? How do you get it? We all have plans about that. You're often stunned with what people think would make them happy. If they would just imagine most of the things they think about that would make, make them happy as written on their tombstones, it would help them change a great deal. Imagine on your tombstone, she had great teeth. But every teacher has to answer the question, who's well off? Who's good? Who's got the good life? And then deeper than that, I think, is the question, who's a truly good person? I lecture on ethics in a lot of different places, and I've asked a lot of audiences, anyone here would like to be a really bad person? I haven't got a single volunteer yet. Except some young girl in the class once who had heard a song by Madonna about all good girls are bad. And she hadn't got that straightened out yet. But we did get that straightened out. And uh, she decided she doesn't want to be bad after all. Uh, see, most folks, are, we, we desperately want to be good. And I'm really convinced that we want that more than anything else. Uh, we want to be good. We're prepared to do what is wrong for good reasons, but we'd really like to be good. <laughs> really like to be good. You'll notice no one ever does what they believe to be wrong without having a good reason. See? So Jesus comes into our life, the master teacher, and he begins to answer the questions. And the questions about reality is simply God. What's real? God is real. The kingdom of God is real. And that's very important. I mean, this teaching doesn't begin with Jesus. And it's designed to pull us away from this world of matter where we can manipulate and manage and steer and use our power. See, it's fortunate for most of us we don't have more power than we did, than we do. And we're big on empowerment, and empowerment is important. I don't deny that. But what are you going to do with the power? And Jesus comes to give us guidance as to what is real, so that we'll know what to do with what power we have. And he says, God is real. And saying that God is real, he's saying, the world of the Spirit is fundamental reality. God is spirit. God is real. And having said that, he turns to us and says, you are spirit too. See, it's because we have turned away from the understanding of God that we can't figure out us. 
And so we see ourselves merely as a physical entity of some sort, struggling in a social setting, if you wish, to achieve its aims and ends in life, rather than seeing ourselves as citizens of God's world. Paul, in that wonderful passage in Philippians, just says, our citizenship is is in heaven, from whence also... Christ will come. In Colossians, he says, you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things. See, that's a different worldview. That tells us where to live. That tells us that we're not here just to avoid death as long as we can and then go out with a squeak. That tells us that God made us to be unceasing spiritual beings with an eternal destiny in his world. See, And once we understand that God is real, then we are able to picture our own life in a way that suddenly all of the other teachings of Jesus begin to make sense. Who's, a, who's well off? The person who lives in the kingdom of God. That's the beauty of the Beatitudes. And, of course, you have to read the Beatitudes with the woe-bees in Luke 6. Woe be unto you that are rich. Now, you see, human beings have it turned around. If you're rich, that's good, isn't it? And is there anything wrong with being rich? Oh, you can be poor and be just as much a slave to riches as people who are rich. It's what's in your heart. And that's what Jesus is teaching. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor. Now, a lot of folks, they're not looking for that one. You know? But, of course, that isn't a teaching about what you should do to be blessed. That's a teaching about who is blessed in the kingdom of the heavens. And in the kingdom of the heavens, the people that human beings think are not blessable can be blessed. And those that human beings think are blessed out of their socks may not be blessed at all. I know a lot of rich people who are miserable. There used to be an ad that ran in the LA Times, pursue happiness in a car that can catch it. It was a Peugeot ad. I knew people who drove Peugeots. They did not strike me as necessarily very happy. And a lot of them were miserable. You see, human thinking has to be corrected with Jesus' understanding of who God is and who we are. And then we begin to understand who's really well off. Who's really well off? The person who is alive. In the kingdom of God. That person is well off. Are they poor? Doesn't matter. Are they rich? Doesn't matter either. That's not the point. The point is where they're living. And they're living from the reality of God and his kingdom. They're well off. They're perfectly safe. 
This is a good place for them to be. It's good for them to be the people they are. And that's the, really the primary message of the Beatitudes is to straighten out people's thinking about that and help them to understand that it's okay for them to be who they are. That God accepts them and has a place for them. That in his eternal kingdom, which is greater than the stunning physical universe by far, in that kingdom they have a place of eternal dignity and joy and fulfillment as spiritual beings. You know, God is not only a creator, he creates creators. And that's what you and I are to be in his world are creators of what is good and beautiful and right, just as he was. And he comes to us and he gives us that. And Jesus comes into the world and says, it's all open to you. And he also tells us who a really good person is. A really good person is a person whose heart is filled with love. Love. The hidden ethic. What the world needs now is love, sweet love, in a movie about wife swapping. They should have said lust, sweet lust. Mm-hmm. Of course, if you'd said that, everyone would know it was wrong. So they call it love, and that dear old word love that stands at the center of the human problem and the human solution turns out to be the heart of the universe. The heart of the universe is not a black hole. The heart of the universe is not a bunch of quivering strings and subatomic particles or whatever it else, whatever else will be turned up in the mythology of physics today or tomorrow. The heart of the universe is a person. The heart of the universe is a community of persons. We call it the Trinity. The old Puritan writer who said, The Trinity, God is in himself a sweet society. Love is the bottom line, the final word. And so in all of the progressions that you see in the scripture, all of the teachings that you find, like in Mark 12, what are the great commandments? Love. Love the Lord God. Love your neighbor as yourself. The marvelous passage in John, 1 John 4, God is love. Colossians 3.14 Above all these things, put on agape, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, in one body, which you were called to. See, love. A good person is a person who is possessed of love. And it's possessed them to the point that it runs all the way down to their fingernails and their eyebrows and their body language. So they're not full of hostility at the body level and just a little glow of love somewhere in their emotions. They have been possessed of love. They love God. Now then, what does that look like? That looks like this. That looks like living without fear. Living without fear. Perfect love casts out fear. You say, well, I'm not there yet. Okay, that's something for you to grow for. Now, when we heard the words of Jesus a while ago, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be ye teleoi. 
that's referring to something that's for you and me. It's good. And when we enter into that, fear goes out, anger goes out. You show me a person who's angry, I'll show you a person who's scared. Get rid of the fear, the anger goes out. The contempt, the need to look down on other people, disappears. All of the divisions that set human beings against one another, race, religion, culture, sex, whatever it is, go out of the human life as love comes in. So when I step out the door in my day and I meet people, I'm able to see them with love and with generosity and with hopefulness, not with content, not with fear. Why? Why is that? How am I able to do that? Because I know that I am secure in God's kingdom. Now let me just quickly tell you, God's kingdom is simply the range of his effective will. That's what God's kingdom is. It's the range of his effective will. It's where what God wants done is done. And in most all of the universe, it is followed perfectly. But he has provided a place in human history for people to do something other than the will of God. And that's our choice. That's our choice. And when we come to know the Father, and we come to live in the Son, then we pray, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then as I pray that, I individually am inviting this kingdom to come into my life in all of its aspects. And to make me a transparent person, a loving person, a compassionate person, one who has nothing to hide, one who is without fear. Now, you see, there's a lot of levels of that that has to work on. I know when the, when the airplane drops, my body goes, <gasps> well, it hasn't got the message yet. That's okay. It's coming along. It does much better now than it used to. So your embodied self has to be retrained in order for us to live in the divine conspiracy. But it's most important for us to understand overall, and that's what I'm most concerned about this evening, for you to just understand the simple biblical and conceptual structure. We are invited through faith in Jesus Christ to live in the kingdom of God. That faith means that we know that Jesus was right about everything. He wasn't just right about liberation, and he wasn't just right about the forgiveness of sins. He's right about everything. Right about everything. And when he teaches me, for example, not to verbally steamroller people, which is what swearing is about. Swearing isn't about cussing. It's about saying things that have no relevance to the situation. You know, like... uh, Well, I won't repeat them, but you can imagine what they are, that people use to impress others that they're really serious. And he says, just let your yes be a yes, your no be a no. Now, how can you do that? You can only do that if you're trusting God to care for you. 
Because if you don't do that, you will try to manipulate other people through the way you put your words. We familiarly call it a song and dance. And unfortunately, there are a lot of religious songs and dances as well. And not the beautiful ones like we saw here this evening, which is glorious. But attempts to manage people and to get them to do what we want them to do without just saying this is the way it is and that's the way it is not. I see, if we have stepped into the kingdom of God and we've begun to learn, we have to retrain ourselves. Because, of course, our, our, our tongue and our jaws are so used to doing the wrong things to manage people and to get our way. Do we have to retrain ourselves? Then we have to retrain them because they're used to our song and dance. It's like anger. People say, well, you, you lay aside anger, Paul says, but if, what, how, how am I going to communicate to people if I'm not angry at them? They're used to me being angry. So if I speak in sweet tones, they won't respond. Right? I mean, you can tell a dog in sweet tones all day long, you know, to go away. And it'll just wag its tail and smile at you. And we're used to operating in ways that we have to retrain ourselves and others to be able to come to the place to where we can sweetly stand in the good things of Christ as he taught us, to where we don't need anger, we don't need contempt, we don't need to cultivate lusting, we don't need to pay back. We don't need to steamroller people with our words, we don't need to to impress them with our religiosity. We don't need to secure ourselves by money or reputation. We can simply seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and see how God adds everything else to that. So we approach the sermon with the attitude, Lord, please show me what my life could be like in your hand. And as we go through the hours of fellowship and study here in this meeting, I hope that that will be our constant prayer. It will be mine. Lord, show me. Show me. What would my life be like if it was like what you describe? Can you identify with that this evening? Is that something that you could say from your heart? Yes. I really want that. I want the Lord to show me. See, it means admitting I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do it. I have to be taught. I have. That's what Renovari is all about, you see. Renovari is a vision that was given to Richard and others have stepped into it with him. And it's really a vision of accountability and support and love in a process of transformation. That allows people to move from the place where anger and fear and contempt and uh, the desire to manipulate and control and secure themselves and hold on to their power and hold on to their reputation and all of that is just given up. A life where there's no more pretending. And just stop pretending. Stop pushing. Can you identify with that vision? Can you imagine that you could be more powerful for what is right and good if you weren't angry 
than if you are? That's the word of Jesus. His little brother James said, The righteousness of man does not, the anger of man, the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. So we come to Jesus and we say, Lord, be our teacher. Lead us into the mystery of your kingdom. Lead us into the divine conspiracy. Make our whole lives a part of it. And let the world experience through me the power of your kingdom. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace, St. Francis prayed. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. What would it be like for me to be like that? You see, our challenge to the world as apprentices of Jesus and his kingdom in all of its agony, in all of its pain, is, is simply, very simply, show us a better way. Show us a better way. That's our challenge to the world. It's painful to, it's painful to even make it sometimes because it's so pathetic what people believe. Uh, teaching where I am and in the circles I'm am, I am, I'll have students and others occasionally ask me, why I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. And my response is, I try to make it a very tender response and one to open the way, but my response is always the same. Who else did you have in mind? And the discussion is usually very short. (laughs) Because once you seriously think about it and and occasionally, someone will say, well, I don't follow anybody. I'm, I'm my own person. I say, well, I unfortunately can't take that course because I'm the one who has the problem. And I congratulate them on being able to do that. So, so it's, it's almost, I don't mean to be mean when I say it, but you see, the, 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 our challenge to the world is, is really show us a better way and we'll take it. But then their challenge to us is, show us and practice the life that is truly eternal. Show us and practice. And that's what the world is waiting for, and it has had glimpses of it. And when Christ came into the world and and electrified a small group of people, they went across the earth and brought to life multitudes of people who saw the intellectuals in the second century in the Greco-Roman world converted en masse to Christ. And they said why they did. They said the problems we have been struggling with for centuries and been unable to solve are solved by Jesus Christ. And if we had time this evening, we could talk about that. Plato and Aristotle and the Stoics and the Epicureans. These were attempts to solve that basic human problem. And it was not without reason that people saw the reality of the eternal life and said, we will take it. And our guide in response to that is simply the Sermon on the Mount. Taught in a way of grace and love, not condemnation, not law. Taught in a way that people understand as they simply fellowship with Christ and his people, they learn the easy way to live. The easy way to live is Christ's way. When you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you think, that's hard. No, that's easy. 
What's hard is what we've got. And if you don't believe that, I, I question whether you have paid much attention to how the world goes. Some years ago in um, Romania, you remember how the communist system broke down there. And there was a time when hundreds of thousands of people came into the central square of the city, the capital city. And it was overwhelming, and the police and the army could do nothing in the face of it. And it had been building for a long while. And and uh, as they all stood in the square, the uh, people, some of the few people who were in leadership, finally came out on a balcony and asked for ministers or priests who would come and explain the way of Christ and speak of Christianity. And, and uh, no, hardly anyone could be found. Uh, nearly all of the people who could be found had identified with the communist system. And the communist system, of course, is simply another version of Nietzsche and another version of Satan in terms of power, trying to use power to make people right. Finally, a little Baptist preacher named Peter was willing to come forward. He had been on the other side, and he said to them, the proof that God is real is that I am alive. And most of them knew his story, and they could agree with him. And he spoke with them briefly, and then he led them in the Lord's Prayer. And 200,000 people bowed on their knees in that square. And he would shout out a phrase of the Lord's Prayer, and they would repeat it after him. What would have to happen for that to happen in Houston? Not the same system. Thank God it's not. But it's not a system in the service of Christ either. Or where you live, and I'm so concerned about each of us here individually, what would it take for people where you live? What would it take for people in your home? to embrace, as no doubt the people in Romania did not understand what they were doing, but to really embrace Jesus and his words. That's the question we face this evening. I want to leave it with you. Repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. Amen. And that was Dallas Willard from back in 1999. You can find more talks and articles and info on Dallas and his books at dwillard.org. There's also lots of really helpful material from Dallas and others at conversatio.org. That's C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O.org. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. This work is made possible by donations from people like you. You can support this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org slash donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find articles and other resources at our website, renovare.org. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. And until next time, be well, friends. Be well.